0: Well, today, we're continuing in Matthew, we are finishing chapter 7, so that means we are finishing the Sermon on the Mount. And so, chapter 7 and two Sundays, we're moving right through it. Uh, the title of the sermon is Exclusive City, instead of Exclusivity, it's Exclusive City, which I'll circle back to at the very end. But I want to start this morning by sharing some quotes with you. <clears throat> Do not exalt any path above God. There are many paths that lead to God. So people are capable of finding and following the ways that suit them, provided they do not stand still. That was Zalman Shachter Shalomi. I'm not going to pronounce a lot of these names right. All paths lead to God. And it doesn't matter if you call him Jehovah, Allah, Buddha, or even if you believe that he is a she. Heather Graham If a man reaches the heart of his own religion, he has reached the heart of others too. There is only one God, and there are many paths to him. Mahatma Gandhi. You are your own devil, you are your own God. You fashioned the paths that your footsteps have trod, and no one can save you from error or sin until you shall hark to the spirit within. Ella Wheeler Wilcox. A true religious person should not think that my religion alone is the right path and other religions are false. Other religions are also so many paths leading to the same domain of transcendental bliss. Abiji Naskar. (laughs) Uh, Because I believe God is bigger than the rules we impose on one another, I think he does not mind if we find different paths to him. S.J. Paris. One should not think my religion alone is the right path and other religions are false. God can be realized by means of all paths. It is enough to have a sincere yearning for God. Infinite are the paths and infinite are the opinions. Ramakrishna. Well, I am a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. Oprah Winfrey. There are many paths to God. What really bothers me and what I think is the height of arrogance and stupidity is when one group believes their way is the only way. That really gets my dander up. Leslie Jordan. See, there's something about exclusivity when it comes to religion and salvation that our world just cannot stand. They hate it. Yet we are not generally so opposed to exclusivity and, and so many Ways. I mean, we have embraced it for all history. And I know things are changing, things are getting weird, and they're getting weird fast. But, you know, generally, we haven't been opposed to the exclusivity of boys and girls bathrooms, or boys and girls sports, or, you know, restaurant, or our president being a natural-born citizen. Or we're not opposed to the exclusivity of restaurants having to pass health standards, right? Or doc or lawyers having to pass the bar exam or doctors being required to have appropriate medical training, right? We don't go around saying, well, anybody should be able to practice medicine. I mean, it shouldn't just be people with certain training and degrees. How dare you make doctors exclusive? Nobody's making that argument, Douglas O'Donnell said, and nobody thinks that if there is only one vaccine that will cure polio, that is too narrow, that we should be able to take whatever drug we want to cure polio. You see, we're not opposed to exclusivity, but we are when it comes to God. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, our world cringes and they scoff. But the reality remains, Christianity is the only way to God. Christianity is exclusive. There is one gate, one road, one vine, one door, one shepherd, one savior. And today we will see Jesus teach that contrary to popular belief, there aren't even many options. There's actually only two. There's only two paths that people walk through life after two gates that they go through. There's only two trees, two foundations. And out of those two, only one ever leads to life. Which is what we'll see as we finish chapter 7 of Matthew today. Let's ask God to be with us, Lord. We pray that I know you know, today the people that I'm preaching to right now Uh, are probably in general agreement about Christ being the only way. But that is not the case in this world. And we need this. Lord, we need this to be reinforced. We need to understand better, especially when it comes to false prophets, false converts. We need to know better how to engage with the world. Uh, We need to understand how you see things. Lord, we need these words from Christ, and so we pray that you would show us how much we need them, and that we would listen, and we ask this in his name, amen. So we're going to start with verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. So for parts of today's sermon, I'm going to be repeating some themes from a couple of sermons that I preached back in early 2019. Uh, There's not going to be a lot of overlap, but if you were here back then, you might have remembered a couple sermons. Uh, One was titled, No Third Road, and another was, Didn't We or Didn't He? And so you'll, you'll... get a little bit of overlap there, because it's about these same passages. But in these verses, Jesus teaches us that there's only two gates, two paths, two ways in life. You see, Ramakrishna was right that there are infinite opinions. However, there are not infinite options. There's only two. People do all kinds of different things in life. They worship all kinds of different things. They believe all kinds of different things, but they are actually only on one of two paths after having walked through one of two gates. That's all there is. And I want to cover a few just quick things at the beginning to build the foundation. And I actually already provided these for you in your notes. So if you're taking notes today, you'll see at the very top, there are some things that you don't have to fill in. And what is the gate? That's one of the questions that we would ask. What is the gate? Well, it's it's very simple. Jesus is the gate. John 10 9, he said, Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastors. He is the gate. How do we enter the gate? Well, Jesus says in our passage, by doing the will of God, But we should expand on that a little bit more because that only truly comes through repentance. So we enter the gate by repenting and putting our faith in Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'll be expanding on that more. We also see that the gate is narrow. And we might ask ourselves, well, why does the gate have to be so narrow? Well, because God made it that way. I mean, that's really, I mean, some don't like that the gate, that's really what people hate about it, is that the gate is narrow. You know, Leslie Jordan said that's that, the narrowness, that's the height of stupidity and arrogance. Is that true? Well, you better be careful. We, we, we better be careful when we start attacking the creator of the universe, the, the one who, without whom you would not have life or breath or meaning at all. See, Douglas O'Donnell said, we shouldn't question the justice and goodness of the scientists who found the one cure for the great plague. So why do we question God when he has provided only one cure for our great plague? Thus the question, why so narrow, is a question of ingratitude and insubordination. It is as contemptible as putting Sir Alexander Fleming on trial for only giving us penicillin. Therefore, in this courtroom, I throw out this case against God. Instead, I do what God does here in his word. He puts us on trial. We must stand before him and give an account for our choices. It's not the other way around. So why is the gate so narrow? We can't fully answer that. We can't look into the mind of God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But we know that it is by his design. And we believe that he is a good, sovereign, perfect God and so it's narrow because that's the way that it needs to be. It must be that way. Now, what I've said so far supposes that the gate, as we imagine the illustration that Jesus lays out, that the gate is at the beginning of the road instead of at the end of the road, right? And people disagree about that. And it doesn't make a huge difference either way. But I tend to think that what Jesus is laying out, and and as I'll show you, it makes the most sense that it is at the beginning of the road. So you walk through the gate and that gets you onto the narrow path. And we'll see how that connects to just salvation in general. But I appreciated what D.A. Carson said. See, the narrow gate is not therefore thereby rendered superfluous, superfluous, Instead, it confirms that even the beginning of this path to life is restrictive. Here is no funnel that progressively narrows down, but a decisive break. You see, regardless of what anyone has in their mind about where the gate is, the truth remains that the path that we walk in following Christ, it doesn't start wide and easy, and then slowly taper down and get narrower and more difficult as we go. It is narrow and difficult from beginning to end. You see, Jesus made it clear so often in his ministry. That that was the case. He told that to people up front. He didn't try to bait and switch people. He wasn't like trying to lure them in. Come on, follow me, guys. Look at my road. Look, it's, it's so uh, wide and so easy. And uh, just come on through. And then they find out later on like, wait a second, Jesus, this is getting kind of tight now. This isn't what we got. This isn't what we were, thought we were getting into. No, he told them up front what they were getting into. And uh, remember as well, there's no third road there's no other option, right? Jesus never presented an option that's a wide, easy path to life. That is something that humans make up. See, we envision a third option. We envision something that we're like, ah, uh, it doesn't have to be so, you know, inclusive and and, and sinful and, and relativistic as this wide road that leads to death. But I don't think it has to be so holy and exclusive as this narrow road that Jesus talks about. No, there's, that's all there is. There's no other option. Furthermore, we shouldn't think of this road as the road that we walk in order to earn our salvation at the end of it. No, no. You see, going through that narrow gate at the beginning is salvation. Walking down that path is salvation. Walking through the pearly gates at the very end is salvation. Salvation. Because remember, salvation is a process. We've got justification, sanctification, glorification, right? And I've taught about those many, many times, but I want them ingrained into your skull so that you will never forget them. They're always there. Justification is when we first, when we're born again, when we first choose to repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ. We move from death to life, right? We become a Christian. Sanctification then is the path that we are walking to become more and more like Christ throughout the rest of our earthly life. We die to ourselves and we pick up our cross. We follow him. He slowly changes us. Glorification is what happens after this life. When we die and we finally get sin removed and we get to live eternally with our Lord, finally, the way that it was meant to be. You see, for a true believer, for someone who is actually a Christian, justification is a past event. I have been saved from the penalty of my sins. Sanctification is a current event. I am being saved from the power of my sins. Glorification is a future event. I will be saved from the presence of my sins. See, we've got three. We've got past, present, future. We're saved from penalty, power, presence. And that's what I envision as Jesus talks about this gate that goes to this road that leads to life. And it's a small gate that we walk through. We just we can't fit through it with all our sinful baggage. This is not enough space. If you want to carry the greed and the worldly desires and the pleasures and the lusts and the pride, you're not going to be able to fit through, right? That's why being justified requires repentance. We have to turn. We have to lay down those things that we, we hold on to naturally with our sinful natures, but we have to turn and repent. We have to lay them down at the cross that marks the entry gate to the narrow road. You see, if you try to walk through that gate with your pride, thinking like, oh, I can do this my way, your head's too bloated and you're, you're going to get stuck in the gate. All right? You're not going to make it through. And it's a really high-tech gate, too, you know? It doesn't just see what's on the outside. It has all these scanners, and it looks at your heart. It sees your mind, your motives, right? Your true desires. You take everything off so you can squeeze through, and then, and then it looks inside to see if there's something that you've hidden up in there. That's why nobody can get through this gate who isn't true, which is, connects to what Jesus says about some people in verse 23 that we'll get to later. But that's also why so few people enter through this gate. Jesus said, few find it. And this goes very well with Luke 13, 23 and 24. Then one said to him, Jesus, Lord, are are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. They're like, Jesus, so are there only a few who are going to be saved? And Jesus is like... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be. You see, even though we don't like to think this way, Christianity will never be well represented in this world. At least this side of Christ's millennial kingdom. But that's the way it, we we don't want to believe it sometimes. We don't believe it. We don't want to, but that's the, between the people who just outright reject Christ, you know, the parable of the sower, right? The seeds that are thrown on the road and just get picked up by the birds. And then the people who fall on the rocky soil or the thorny soil and they don't produce fruit, right? Because they, they received the gospel with gladness, but then they didn't produce fruit. Between those three seeds, we end up with just a few who are the good soil, a few who actually find the narrow gate and walk through it. So I feel confident in my conviction that not even a place like America ever had a majority of Christians in it. We very well probably had a majority of fake Christians, but that is far different. And where are we today? I don't know. Only God knows. Wouldn't surprise me at all if only 5% of our nation has walked through the narrow gate. But why do so few find it? That's the next question that I want us to answer. Why we you know, we look why is it narrow, but why do so few walk through it? And the Bible gives us the answers. The first reason is because of evil. We were reading last week, Jesus called his own followers evil. And it's like, "Whoa, seriously?" Yeah, seriously. That's exactly what we are until we are born again. The Bible teaches us clearly. We have a sinful nature. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Ephesians 2.3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Romans 7 18, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. We start life pointed and moving in the wrong direction, away from God. We don't start life neutral. We start life pointed away from God, and we're not just sitting still either. We're moving away from him. And that's why being saved requires repentance because repentance is to turn. You will turn away and you will face God and then you will start walking towards him. You see, it's also partially why so few find the gate, the evil, sinful nature that we have. that keeps us from wanting it. It keeps us from seeking it. And then even if you find it, it keeps us from walking through it. But that's not the only reason. We have evil, and then we also have ease. That's what Jesus made clear in verse 13. The gate is wide. The road is broad that leads to destruction. You see, that's easy. You can take whatever you want down that path. All the stuff that you had to take off to, to squeeze through the narrow gate, now you can carry that with you. And guess what? You can accumulate more. Accumulate all you want while you walk. People want life easy. Right? That's, that's our world. We, we want everything easy. We want easy money, easy jobs, easy tests, easy degrees, easy intimacy, right? easy shopping, easy parenting, easy salvation. And the wide gate and broad road are happy to oblige, even if it's all built on lies. You walk up to the narrow gate. There's a cross standing beside it. You know, you you look through, you can see on the other side, and you see this tiny path that you're, this is not wheelchair friendly, that's for sure. And you look at it, you're like, I don't even know if a horse could make it down that. And you're like, well, they definitely couldn't. I I picture it being more like the picture that's on the front of your bulletins this morning. Like, you're like, I don't even know if I can get through there. And you don't see anybody else there either. Maybe you catch a glimpse of somebody in the distance, and Jesus is standing there to greet you, and you're like, um, can I come... Through here, and he's like, "Yeah, absolutely, you can come through here. In fact, I have already paid your price of admission. But uh, just I, I'm going to need to take take this, and, and I'm going to need to take this, and and I'm going to need to take this, and uh, well, I, I, I actually I just need to take all of it. So just just give me all of that, and then stand here, and then I'm going to scan you, and we're going to see if anything's hiding on the inside. And, and you're like, Oh actually, well, just hold off just a second. Let me have that back. I'll hold on to that right now. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to think about this, Jesus. Let me get back to you. And then you walk over to the other gate. And it's huge. You could drive a house through it. And you look on the other side and you see this giant road and it's paved, it's smooth. You're like, wow, and there's a bunch of people on it and they're having a good old time and Satan's there to greet you and he's not hideous either. He looks good. He's well-dressed. He's like, hello friend, welcome. Come right on through. No scanners here, no price of admission. Guess what? No rules. Come on, have fun, be free. Well, Which one are most people going to choose? They're going to choose the easy one. Even though it leads to Destruction, death, suffering. But that's what they're going to choose. They're going to choose that path because of evil, ease. And then verses 15 through uh, 20 tell us the next one. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. You see, so few find and walk through the narrow gate because of evil, ease, and error. You could put in parentheses false prophets next to error if you wanted to. People get led astray by lies. Our world is a false gospel factory. And guess what? Satan doesn't care which one you believe. He doesn't care which lie you believe. As long as you believe a lie, that's good for him. And all the lies you want can pile up on the wide road. It doesn't matter. One of the jobs of a pastor is to protect his flock, to protect the sheep from the wolves, from the false teachers, which is why it's hard to understand sometimes because some people get so worked up anytime a Christian or a pastor like, recognizes and points out a false teacher. And it's like, well, what are you worked up about? Like That's what we're supposed to do. So they must misunderstand biblical judgment, as we learned last week, right? Now, of course, that, those things, they can be misused. They can be abused. And it's sad when they are. People can get mislabeled as heretics. And, and you know, so we have false teachers out there. We also, we, there's also, there's wolves. And then there's also some people who, I don't know, maybe they're not heretics. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But they're also, they're just not really good. They're not healthy. You should you'd be better off to avoid them, right? And so when I come and, and I tell people, when I tell our church, like, hey, you stay away from Joel Osteen. Stay away from Bill Johnson, you know? That, I'm just doing my job, you know. When, when I, when I tell the ladies, you know what? I think you're better off without Beth Moore Bible studies in your life. I think there's better things that you could be putting into your life. And that's, I'm not being slanderous. I'm not being hateful. I'm just trying to protect, trying to provide you with what is good, what is healthy. And how do we recognize these people? Jesus says by their fruit. Well, that sounds simple, but it's not always so easy. You know, it's not. I mean, you guys, you go to the grocery stores and stuff. Is it always easy to pick the the good fruit? No, you get home and then you are like, this fruit's terrible. I'm going to take it back. And sometimes you can see it on the outside, right? You see it very clearly and you're like, I'm just going to avoid that. I can see clearly it's rotten. But then there's other times it looks good on the outside and then you bite into it and then you spit it out instantly because you realize it's rotten. But then there's other times when it looks good on the outside and you bite into it and it tastes good and you gobble it up and then you're puking in the middle of the night. It's not always so easy to tell, right? Sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it happens slowly over time. Take a look at Judas. Of course, Jesus knew the whole time, but nobody else did. He spent years with the disciples. Eventually, his fruit was exposed. Same thing with Ananias and Sapphira. Simon the magician. You know, John Bloom said the Greek word translated into English as weed in this parable is Zizanyan, which the original readers would, and this is the wheat in the weeds, which the original readers would likely have understood to be a particular weed called Darnell. Darnell has been known as wheat's evil twin for thousands of years because in seed form and early development, it looks very much like wheat, but it's toxic to humans and so must be separated at harvest. See, Jesus doesn't tell us how quickly and how easily it will be to know them by their fruits, but eventually we will know them by their fruits. Sometimes we'll recognize that here before the final separating, you know, through church discipline and things like that. Sometimes it won't happen until Jesus finally separates the wheat from the weeds, the sheep from the goats. And I'm not focusing specifically on false teachers today, but uh, we do need to know what to look for. John MacArthur put it well when he said that we're we're looking at their character and their creed. I didn't put that in your notes, but if you wanted to add it, We're looking at their character and their creed. You know, sometimes people have the right doctrines and they have the wrong character. And that's a problem, right? They're false. That's someone not to follow. Sometimes they appear to have the right character, though. And you can see that they have the right, the wrong doctrines. And sometimes you can see both clearly. It always depends, but that's what we are looking for, right? We're not looking for, just because someone has, as we're going to see in a moment, just because someone prophesies, performs miracles, casts out demons, and all these things that they could show, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't prove anything, at least. You see, we're looking at how do they handle the word of God, and do they fit the biblical qualifications of a spiritual leader? And eventually their fruit will be exposed. Now, it wouldn't be surprising if as we're reading this, we were confused by some of what Jesus says here, because we, we look at what he said and we think, well, wait a second, but a bad tree can produce good fruit. And a good tree can produce bad fruit. Well, no, not really. All right. Not not really. Certainly a bad tree can produce what appears to be good fruit. And in the next Verses we're going to see that false prophets, false wolves in sheep's clothing and, and, and goats, they, they can cast, they, say, they come before Jesus say, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do mighty works, miracles in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you. You see, false prophets, false converts can do all kinds of things that might, to people who aren't wise enough, look like, make them look like they're true, but it doesn't mean they are. They can do other things that we would label as good. They can give to the poor. They can do, you know, what seemingly selfless acts. They can do all kinds of things that we would say, well, that's good fruit, but it's not really good fruit, right? Because it doesn't bring glory to God. That's not what they're doing it for. They're not doing it for his glory, his honor, the fruit of the spirit. That's good fruit. Well, a bad tree can't produce the fruit of the spirit because the bad tree doesn't have the spirit. And anything that appears to be good is not good because it's not done for the right reasons. I mean, this is also kind of why I have a hard time when people say things, that they might talk about somebody that's not a follower of Jesus and say, oh, well, you know, he's he's a good husband. Or, he's a good father. And I'm like, oh, you know. How can I be a good dad if I don't raise my kids up in the instruction of the Lord? Right? Yeah, I can I can provide them safety, I can spend quality time with them, I can give them all the food they need, but I'm still setting them up, I'm poisoning them and setting them up for failure to walk down the path that leads to destruction, that leads to hell. That's not good fruit, according to Christ. And we also need to consider what Paul said in Philippians 1:15 through 18. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they are causing me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice." So is Paul saying that good fruit comes from bad trees? No, I don't believe he is. I believe that he's saying that, thankfully, God can still work in spite of bad trees. God's word still produces. It doesn't go out void, right? Joel Osteen may be a heretic, but you know what? Somebody can wander into his church and pick up a Bible and find their way to the Lord and praise God that he can still do that. And you know what? I don't think that somebody like that preaches the real gospel, but there are people who can preach the true gospel with the wrong motives. And, and God can use that. He can bring people to salvation through that. But that is fruit of the gospel. That's fruit from the Lord. And of course, we know that all good fruit is fruit from the Lord. It's the fruit of the spirit, right? But so we don't give ourselves any credit for it. But that's not good fruit that's coming from the teacher who's not a good tree, Because if it was good fruit, then it would be fruit that would be recognized and rewarded in eternity. And it's not going to be. But we also, we wonder, well, how can't good trees produce bad fruit? Because uh, we look at ourselves and, you know, I'm like, God, I know I'm a good tree. I know that you saved me. I know that I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit, but it sure seems like I produce bad fruit pretty frequently. And we don't take Jesus so literally that we think he's saying that we don't sin anymore. We know the Bible teaches that we still commit sin. But we need to understand what Jesus said in Matthew 3, 8. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. See, that's a key right there. Yeah, we still sin. Good trees still sin. But in a believer's life, even sin produces good fruit because it produces repentance. Repentance. It's very important to understand. So we see the gate is narrow. We see that few find it because of evil, ease, and error. We, we see that some people, like the false prophets, are wolves in sheep's clothing. They know who they are. They fool others, but they're not themselves fooled. They know exactly what they're doing. But then there's other people who are a little different. Other people are goats in sheep's clothing and they haven't fooled they they have fooled themselves right they don't actually understand who they are they believe that they are sheep and i believe that that's the kind of person that we see in verses 21 through 23 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? Do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Those are some of the most terrifying verses for people in all of scripture. Because we read that and we think, well, wait a second. What about knowing them by their fruit? What about knowing ourselves by our fruit? Is this not the fruit that we're looking for, Jesus? These people, they, they prophesied. They drove out demons. They performed mighty works in your name. Is that not the will of the Father that you say who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, is it? Is that what has been commanded? I mean, I'm not saying that those kinds of things can't happen with Christians, but is that what has been commanded by Christ? No, it is not. What has been commanded is repentance. What has been commanded is forgiveness, mercy, humility, selflessness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not exorcisms, prophecy, miracles, tongues. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. You know, we can disagree on some aspects of what, and what we see them announcing here is what people would call charismatic gifts. We can disagree on some aspects of, there's people in our church that have different opinions about, the, about what people call the charismatic gifts and things like that. And that's Okay. We can disagree on things. To an extent, it's not always okay. Like if, it, if we're talking about something that starts getting, distorting the gospel, if you're, if you're adding to salvation, you're changing the gospel, then we can't agree to disagree. But there are many things that we can disagree on. However, a lot of people look to these kinds of things as proof of salvation, and Jesus puts the kibosh on that argument. He silences it just like that. We also see Matthew twenty four twenty four. Oh, I was going to bring that back up. But. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What are they going to do? False Christs and false prophets? They're going to perform great signs and wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Uh, Revelation 13, 13 and 14, it performs, and this is going to be a false prophet here, great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived few chapters later in chapter 16, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. Satan has power. He can perform wonders. We know that that happens. It's going to happen even more as we near the end and we know that power doesn't come from God, but it is real. And this is the difference. This highlights the difference of trying to show up to God and get into heaven with a resume instead of a referral. I mean, what are these people doing? Look at the things they list. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? I mean, if we're looking for true converts, those seem like the kinds of things that you'd be looking for. A lot of us, we'd stand before God and we'd be like, well, God, didn't I sit in church and listen to people prophesy? Didn't I pray that I would never meet a demon-possessed person? And didn't I do some average works in your name from time to time? And so a lot of us, we look at these people and what they're claiming and we're like, what are you talking about? Those are the super-Christians. But he says, "I never knew you." I want you to notice what their focus was. Picture yourself finally standing before Jesus. You're faced with the famous hypothetical question: Why should I let you into my heaven? What's your attitude going to be? What's your response going to be? Well, here's my resume, Jesus. Here's what I did. This, 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 this. You see, but that's not the focus of a true disciple. We don't ask. Didn't we? We ask. Didn't he? We look at Jesus and we say, why should you let me in? Jesus didn't you didn't you leave your place in heaven beside the Father to come down and be with us? Did't you weren't you born of a perfect birth, lived a perfect life so that you could be the spotless lamb? Didn't you sacrifice yourself on the cross as a as payment for my sins? Didn't you conquer death with your resurrection? Didn't you offer eternal life to those who would repent and put their faith in you? Didn't you go back up to the Father and sit by him to intercede for me? Didn't you send the Holy Spirit back to seal me and be my guarantee? Jesus didn't you. You see, that's the focus. That's the difference between a wolf, a wolf, and a goat and a, and a true sheep. We know that we can't come to God with a resume because we have nothing to offer. So we come with a referral. We look at Jesus. We point at him. You say, why should I let you in? We point at him. We say, I'm with him. He invited me. He told me I could come. You see, a wolf is focused on looking like a sheep so they can destroy the church. A goat is focused on looking like a sheep so that they could actually be one. They want to be the church. But we must beware. That's what Jesus says, beware. O'Donnell again said, beware of whom? Beware of those new atheists who attack Christianity? No. We can recognize them for who they are. Beware of bizarre cult leaders? No. They are obvious also. Rather, we are to beware of men and women who look like Christians, who come to you in cheap clothing, who talk like Christians, Lord, Lord, and who act like super-Christians preaching and casting out demons and doing mighty miracles. That's who we're warned about. Paul, in the book of Acts, does the same thing when he's uh, talking to the elders. He warns them of those who would come and infiltrate from the inside out. See, Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. Go away. Which is, Great support for the security, the eternal security of a true believer. These people didn't, they weren't saved. They didn't lose their salvation. Jesus didn't know them and then unknow them. He said, I never knew you. You see, we don't, we don't, a Christian doesn't have to be worried about losing their salvation. That, that's not a fear in the church. That's not something that I need to guard against happening in the church because it's a thing that can't happen. But false conversions is a real big problem. That's a thing that happens, according to Christ, more often than not. So we've seen that Jesus has showed us two gates, two paths, two trees. And he finishes with two foundations. Famous passage you guys have read many times, I'm sure. Verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. This is a well-known passage. I I think it can often be a misappropriated passage because I think sometimes people look at the storms that come and they think, oh, you know, the regular storms of life that we have to make it through. But that's not what Jesus is envisioning here. This This is the final storm. This is the judgment. This is getting, this is being, standing before Christ and being told, welcome or go away, I never knew you. Right. This, that's not to say, I mean, obviously a true believer is going to make it through whatever storms in life come. And and the Bible is full of plenty of things to help us through those things. But that's not what is envisioned in this passage. And with all of this section and why I'm not going to, you know, highlight and expand on this particular part of the analogy is that Jesus is making the same point. Again and again and again. There's only one way. There's only one gate to enter through, one path to walk on, one vine, one tree that produces fruit, one foundation to build on. And that's Him. He is the gate. His way is the path. He is the vine that we latch ourselves onto so that we can produce fruit. He is the foundation that we build on, the chief cornerstone without which the whole structure would come tumbling down. And He is the King who speaks. By his own authority. As he finishes this sermon, when Jesus had finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. And I've talked about that a few weeks ago see, Jesus didn't have to reference anybody else. Many of us, we've done schooling, we've written research papers, and we know that when we do that, we've got to fill it up with all these references, right? We've got to show that we were getting our information from the experts, and that gives authority to our paper. But Jesus didn't need to do that. He is the reference. He didn't need to say, God says. He didn't need to say, Scripture says. He didn't need to say, uh, attach himself to some rabbi that everybody liked. When he spoke... It was by his authority. He said, you've heard that it was said, but here's what I say. He is the word of God become flesh, the one who spoke us into existence. Every time he spoke, it was scripture because he is the word. And the question is, will you listen to him? Or will you question his authority? Will, Will you tell him that his narrowness is the height of stupidity and arrogance? Or will you walk through his gate to travel his path, produce fruit from his vine, and build on his foundation? Because that is the only way to life. Because heaven is an exclusive city.